0: Hey gang, this week's episode is brought to you by the Arizona Office of Tourism. This spring, follow your favorite baseball teams to Arizona for Cactus League spring training. Amazing weather and landscapes, exciting outdoor adventure, incredible food. Arizona is the perfect home base for baseball fans. Plan your spring training getaway at VisitArizona.com slash springtraining. Yes, that's VisitArizona.com slash springtraining. And now here's our show. 15 seconds left on the clock. The crowd begins to count it down.
1: Chapman with maybe one more shot. Time has run out. Listen to the crowd. The Detroit Express have won the 1982 American. And soccer League Championship by the score of four to one over Oklahoma City to win the best of three series two to one Detroit four and Oklahoma City one behind the scoring of Shadecy Chapman Watson and Tinian the great goaltending by Delorme and this big crowd celebrating here at the Pontiac Silverdome what a great event here at the Dome. Absolutely perfect ending for a fine, fine season for the Detroit Express. Sonny Van has kept soccer alive here now for two years in the American Soccer League and he's built something and he's built today with a 33,000 crowd and brought Detroit, brought Detroit a championship, the only championship we've seen in a long, long time and a very, very fine performance all around, tremendous team performance.
0: Welcome to Good Seats Still Available, a curious little podcast devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon. Greetings and salutations, everybody. My name is indeed Tim Hanlon. How are you, everybody? Uh, this is Good Seats Still Available. You know that by now. We appreciate your uh, finding us. Our curious little podcast, our excursion each week into what used to be in professional sports. And uh, as you heard, there we are. Uh, we're going back to soccer, and not the obvious uh, forays into the uh, NASL, which we've done quite a bit of uh, over the many, many months of this uh, this little show. We're going into uh, something we've only talked about just once—episode uh, twenty-nine specifically—with uh, our pal Ronnie Salerno in uh, in Cincinnati when we talked about the Cincinnati Comets uh, back in, uh, I guess it was nineteen seventy-four-ish or seventy-three-ish uh, of the old American Soccer League and. You know, it's been a curiosity and frankly, a number of uh, inquiries over the last number of weeks uh, about uh, uh, questions about teams and people in the American soccer league, the most uh, perhaps enigmatic of of soccer history leagues uh, in this country. And uh, we uh, have uh, called upon our resident soccer expert, Steve Holroyd, uh, this week to kind of allow us to go into perhaps uh, an early survey of this most uh, uh, curious of professional soccer leagues in the United States, the American Soccer League. Yeah, there have been a number of different versions of it uh, for you uh, persnickety uh, soccer historians out there. So this is uh, uh, essentially known as the second version of the American Soccer League, but it's the longest lasting and uh, perhaps the most uh, historical, I guess, of all of the, quote unquote, American soccer leagues. It uh, got its start. Uh, way back in 1933, and uh, and truly, to its name, was envisioned to be a top-tier uh, professional league, uh, especially amongst uh, baseball team owners. And uh, we've sort of heard and seen some of those uh, those approaches before. However, uh, as uh, things sort of wore on, the war, World War II, and all these other sort of distractions, uh, the American soccer league, basically in the 40s and 50s and 60s, pretty much uh, uh sort of uh, languished uh, albeit spirited uh, in as mostly an ethnic league uh, comprised mostly of um uh, new immigrants to the United States especially in the east coast a little bit of the midwest and some very uh, you know amazing and strong teams and and there's a whole very very deep and rich history there i arguably uh, most of the the players that for example played on the uh, uh the team uh, the us national team in 1950 that upset uh, England uh, during the World Cup, uh, sort of the uh, one of the greatest games ever played in American soccer history. I, you know, uh, any professional that rose above, I guess, to either play outside this country or even coached or or was found in the collegiate and, uh, and semi-pro ranks came out of this American Soccer League uh, during that period of time. But it was around the early 1970s, which is kind of the time we're going to be sort of focused on. Uh, with our conversation with Steve Holroyd in just a few moments, uh, is when the American Soccer League kind of got the uh, the fever, shall we say. It got the, got the bug, the top-tier professional bug that uh, the North American Soccer League had uh, kind of perhaps uh, laid uh, the groundwork for, and the ASL kind of didn't want to get left behind. Uh, as we'll get into our conversation with Steve, that uh, kind of all got set in motion in the late 1960s when, As we've talked about on multiple episodes, two, if not even three groups of uh, of business owners and business uh, sports entrepreneurs got together to kind of take advantage of the 1966 World Cup and NBC's uh, national broadcast of the game uh, in the United States uh, to create uh, once and for all some uh, top tier professional level uh, leagues in the United States. And we all know sort of what happened there in 67. There were two leagues Rivaling each other, they sort of merged into 1968 to become the North American Soccer League, and then they uh quickly uh, crashed and burned, and and, and almost didn't survive. 69, 1970. I mean, we we're down to like five teams in those NASL lean years. But the American Soccer League, you know, a couple of years after that, 72, 73 or so, as the NASL was regaining its toehold, uh, starting to get a little bit more traction, and as the uh, process by which american soccer was kind of uh rerouting itself shall we say uh the american soccer soccer league the asl uh was uh, watching quietly and then not so quietly in the background and we're going to get into that period of time in this american soccer league from roughly the early 1970s when uh the sort of uh, the, the beginning of the end i guess of these ethnic uh teams and clubs uh You know, we're talking about teams known as uh, the New York Greeks and the Philadelphia Ukrainians and the Baltimore St. Gerards and Roma SC, uh, the Newark Portuguese, you know, the the Ukrainian Stitch also of Newark, New York Inter. These are all teams that um, literally were the legacy of the American Soccer League. And it's clearly a conversation for uh, another show at some point. But uh, in the early 70s, we saw. Uh, The beginnings of uh, a desire to sort of shed those ethnic names and uh, and become a bit more, shall we say, American centric uh, and truly try to devote uh, more effort around developing the quintessentially American, quote unquote, player. And that was what the American Soccer League under the uh, under the guidance of a guy named Gene Chisiewicz, which uh, who we'll talk about, too, in this. Uh, yes, his brother was Walt chiswick, and we've we've talked about him peripherally as well in previous conversations. But uh, you saw, for example, the New York Greeks become the New York Apollo, a little bit more uh, American sounding, and and teams like the New Jersey Americans and the Los Angeles Skyhawks, uh, the Columbus Magic, the Sacramento Gold, and as you heard in that clip at the beginning of this uh, little show here, uh, the Detroit Express and the Oklahoma City Slickers, who in 1982. Uh, We're playing for uh, the American Soccer League Championship, a three-game affair, the last of which you just heard there was the championship securing victory in front of, gosh, was almost 30,000 people in the Pontiac Silverdome as the Detroit Express, unsuccessful in winning a championship in their years in the NASL, finally broke through and won Detroit's only professional soccer championship at the tail end of 1982. As a matter of fact, I think it was... Oh, my gosh, I think it was uh, sometime in, oh, I want to say it was September. Yeah, September 22nd, 1982, as a matter of fact. And that uh, that clip was uh, featuring uh, the uh, the dulcet uh, play-by-play tones of uh, Bob Lewandowski and color commentary by Roger Faulkner on the something called the Detroit Express Television Network. I don't know how significant or deep-rooted that was, but uh, they uh, in the Pontiac Silverdome in front of almost 30,000 fans. Uh, was the uh, second to last, the penultimate American Soccer League champion that was crowned. But we get into this period of time, the sort of early 1970s through the early 1980s, into amazing uh, stories about this, I wouldn't call it Division II, although in the the sort of the prism of history, it's sort of uh, considered to be sort of the second tier. Ah, uh, behind the uh, the then mighty North American Soccer League, the ASL, the American Soccer League, and it's it's so many different twists and turns. Uh, and uh, again, if you were a fan, say of the Indy Daredevils or uh, the Georgia Generals, perhaps uh, uh, the Houston Dynamos, or maybe even the uh, second incarnation of the uh, Jacksonville Teammen when they left the New York, uh, excuse me, the North American Soccer League, uh, the Rochester Flash, the Carolina Lightning, all kinds of interesting teams. Uh, that came and went uh, in the old American soccer that we get into. The Pennsylvania Stoners, yes, all of those things and more. In our conversation uh, with the great soccer historian, we appreciate his uh, joining us, Steve Holroyd, coming up. In just a moment or two, fascinating stuff. Even if you've uh, never heard of the ASL, or even if you fancy yourself as a soccer fan, you may not know a lot about this American Soccer League, and I think you'll enjoy. As you will also enjoy the fine wares of one of our great sponsors, our pals at uh, oldschoolshirts.com, and our pals, uh, P.F. Wilson and his band of merry women and men uh, in Cincinnati, and uh, uh, of course, there are some great shirts that you can use to commemorate this episode about the old ASL at OldSchoolShirts.com using that promo code, of course, Good Seats for 10% all of your purchases. And what do they got there? Well, they've got shirts commemorating clearly lots of old teams, no longer with us, certainly a lot of uh, great pop culture history, amusement parks and and bars and restaurants and all kinds of stuff that you may remember And uh, you'd like to proudly uh, do so in T-shirt form. But of course, OldSchoolShirts.com, he says, promo code GOODSEATS, has a number of, wait for it, American Soccer League T-shirts. I mentioned the Indianapolis Daredevils, also known as the Indy Daredevils. They played in Indianapolis in the ASL from 1978 through 1979, two seasons. They were formerly known as the Rhode Island Oceaneers. Uh, and they played in uh, in the Providence area from 1974 through 76. And then they renamed themselves the New England Oceaneers in 77. I'm not sure exactly where they played then. But uh, in 1978, they moved to Indianapolis to become the Daredevils. And there's a tremendous shirt there at OldSchoolShirts.com commemorating the Indy Daredevils. And if, you're, uh, if you spy with your little eye, uh, you'll notice that the logo of the Indy Daredevils looks a lot like Uh, A rehashed version of the Oceaneers logo from their time in Rhode Island. Fascinating stuff and a great looking shirt. Perhaps one of the best logos, both the Oceaneers and the Daredevils, uh, the Indianapolis Daredevils at OldSchoolShirts.com. Again, promo code GOODSEATS. There's also an old Cleveland Cobras shirt. The Cleveland Cobras uh, were one of the longer lasting of the modern version of the ASL teams from 1974 through 1981. Uh, They started their life actually as the Cleveland Stars. And, yes, there's a shirt there at OldSchoolShirts.com commemorating that version uh, in 1972 and 73, the Cleveland Stars. Uh, The Cobras, of course, for you uh, folks paying attention, in 82 then moved to Georgia, Atlanta uh, suburbs, to become the Georgia Generals. But uh, all of those shirts uh, and more, plenty more, are there for you to enjoy and uh, reminisce uh, at OldSchoolShirts.com. Again, use that promo code GOODSEATS and get 10% off all of your purchases. Not just these ASL shirts, but all kinds of other great sports and pop culture history shirts. Uh, And again, our friends uh, P.F. Wilson and team at OldSchoolShirts.com. Again, that promo code GOODSEATS for 10% off all of your purchases. We uh, thank them and you for trying them out. And uh, as they say, you'll be glad you did. All right, let's uh, move on into... Uh, The fun and very interesting origin stories, I guess, of the late uh, life of the American soccer. We're going to focus on this uh, this time between the early 70s through their demise in 1983 of the old ASL. Here's our conversation that we had with Steve just a couple of days ago. And uh, please enjoy. Why don't you remind our audience who you are by day, who you are by night, and how soccer and and maybe even lacrosse, for that matter, uh, has uh, sort of, I want to say, consumed your life. But it certainly has taken up a large part of it outside of the way you uh, put bread on the table.
1: Well, thanks for having me back, Tim. My name is Steve Holroyd. By day, I am a labor attorney uh, here in the city of Brotherly Love, Philadelphia, uh, representing labor unions Um, uh, in what free time I have. If it's not playing soccer, uh, when my kids were younger, it included coaching soccer. Now it's mostly spending a lot of time uh, compiling and writing about uh, the great history it has in this country, um, even though most people um, think uh, that it started in 1994 with the World Cup. Some people who think they're particularly clever will think it started with Pele's arrival in 1975. uh, But in fact... It's got a history, including a professional history, professional history going back to the 19th century. So um, so that's, I spent a lot of time doing that. Uh, lately, I just collect a lot of primary resources, and from there, call out tidbits and stuff that I can write about or tweet on Twitter, just to sort of generate interest in the fact that this sport does have a history and it needs to be honored. That said, uh, as a historian, I'd have to say I'm here today to bury the second ASL, not to praise it. Um, and I think we'll, we'll get into some of that in due course. But to go to your point, uh, I, I think there's a lot of interest in it for two reasons. Uh, one, um, there is there's a, there's a vehemently anti-MLS contingent on social media that thinks it advances their cause by uh, pretending that uh, professional soccer has always been here in the United States. And I guess in a strict technical sense, it has but it depends on what you mean by professional as opposed to major league and this group likes the champion the american soccer league as oh it was there just like the nba and major league baseball and we need to honor it and that really wasn't the case and as far as the latter day asl that, that we're going to be speaking mostly about today i think um i think there's interest in it because uh people want to take lessons from the past and to the extent they want to see a rival to MLS and frankly, I'm one of them. I'd like to see a legitimate rival to major league soccer, like the AFL, like the ABA, like the w- WHA had been in that because I think that rival leagues are what really bring about positive change in American sports. And I think they're looking to the American soccer league in that brief window when it tried to be something closer to major league, when it tried to, uh, if not challenge the NASL offer a, a different version of how professional soccer, uh, could be. And, uh, and of course it ultimately failed. And I think some people would like to take lessons from that.
0: Well, let, let's talk about the, the NASL, uh, specifically because I, you know, in my, my back and forth with you on, on sort of my, uh, memories and then aided by some of my arguably cursory research, um, I kind of sort of soft circled, uh, the early 1970s, I think perhaps 1971 ish or so as sort of the, I guess the sort of, um, I don't know the the uh, the inflection point, I guess, of what was the ASL, and, and again, for historian's sake, and I don't want to get into the particulars of the, the the true second incarnation of the American Soccer League, but albeit for you know since 1933 and its second uh, incarnation was really sort of this this inflection towards more truly, or at least a, a you know anticipatory or trying to truly get to a more professional or major league kind of thing, but I, I think actually having having referred to my uh, old uh, Encyclopedia of American Soccer History by Messrs. Uh, Alloway, uh, Joes, and, uh, and Litterer, you could you could argue, as I think they have in their entry here for the ASL, number two, uh, is that uh, the ni- around 1966, really, is kind of maybe, in their words, sort of the beginning of the end, I guess, of the ASL's potential oversight of professional game here in the United States. Because ironically, or maybe not so, it... it it was when the United States Soccer Federation, or us I guess it was called the USSFA at that point still,
1: right?
0: Uh, it basically gave a, a grant to a fledgling entity that, that wanted to go truly big league and arguably kind of took that power away from this ASL that, I don't know, should have had a better game plan to get there. I don't know. Maybe you can kind of set us up maybe using that as a starting point instead.
1: Yeah, and I think that's an excellent starting point. I mean, uh, up, the, uh, up in 1966, the American Soccer League was ostensibly a professional league, but it had it had this status that none of the other equally semi-pro leagues, such as the National Soccer League in Chicago or the St. Louis Soccer League, had. And that was that the uh, United States Soccer Football Association, as you, as you know it was called at the time, had granted to the ASL the exclusive right to control professional soccer on the Eastern Seaboard. And that itself is a vestige of a compromise from like uh, a, a second soccer war. Uh, you know, there was everyone, most soccer fans, uh, if they've been paying attention and, and, uh, and, and listening to your podcast and, and, and reading the stuff that the society for american soccer history puts out they're aware of the soccer war of 1928-29 it was a death it was a, it was a body blow to the original ASL and and just did not help the sport there was actually a second war much smaller in scope right around the, right around that period between the the end of the a, first ASL and the second ASL and one of the compromises was uh, the united states soccer uh, the united states football association at the time continue to say we are, going to, we are controlling professional soccer. We're not going to give the ASL the autonomy it's been seeking since, you know, 1924. You, have, you still answer to us. However, we will give you ASL exclusive rights to the Eastern Seaboard. And all the ASL really ever did with that was they used that as a, as a method to import foreign teams over to play exhibitions, which were very profitable and, and helped keep the ASL alive. But they didn't really try to do much else with it, except to stop the international soccer league, Bill Cox's international soccer league, from continuing. Because there, for the first time, the ASL felt compelled to uh, to wave its hey, we're the exclusive uh, pro league here, we control this. However, up until uh, as of 1966, the second ASL remained what it had always been. Uh, it was not a professional soccer league, as, as much as it was a loose affiliation of ethnic social clubs. And so when major leagues, small n, small l, uh, soccer uh, started to rear its head in late 1966, um, the ASL was not only happy to stay out of the way and wish them luck because having a national league with big budgets and everything else was really nothing that, again, these little social clubs, ethnic social clubs running the ASL teams had any interest in. but they were also happy to step out of the way uh, and, and kind of seed their exclusivity status. And yeah, with that, at that moment, the ASL ceased to be relevant. Um, and, and yeah, that's when, or I guess I should say the ethnic era of the second ASL ceased to be relevant and began a slow death spiral that stopped in 1971 when the um, a, a truly American, American soccer league, if you will, began to take shape.
0: Yeah, so it's interesting. I mean, and maybe this is sort of historical nitpicking, but you, you almost wonder maybe why, uh, obviously it was still sort of in continuation, but maybe why it wasn't sort of a, a demarcated almost as sort of, if you will, the third version at that point, given that it took on a different complexion. We'll get into that in a, in a second as to maybe how that started to become. But but you know, give us a sense maybe of some of the teams around that sort of 1966 sort of decision point and the the early rumblings in 71 ish or so. Uh, we're talking about uh, you know places like the Metropolitan Oval in in New York and and teams out of Kearney and and the New York. I mean, there are all kinds of ethnic kind of uh, enclaves and 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 teams and and it's it's very much a uh, could you call it semi pro? I mean, was there pref- was there pay or was it literally you know, just competition and just keeping their keeping their bills paid. Or what was the construct of that as we then segue into 71 or so when it truly was desired to become, quote unquote, more professional?
1: It's uh, the, the American Soccer League was semi pro uh, folks were getting paid. Maybe not every team was paying, but um, I guess probably the best description was provided by Walt Chisowitz. Walt Chisowitz was a longtime star in the American soccer league throughout the 1960s with, uh, with, uh, Newark, Ukrainian, Newark stitch, Philadelphia, Ukrainian nationals. And in 1967, he, uh, he jumped to the Philadelphia Spartans of the national professional soccer league. One of the two quote major leagues that had popped up that year. And he offered, he, I guess he was asked at some point, Hey, how is this different from playing with the old Ukrainian nationals? And, uh, Chiswet said he offered this quote, The ASL was supposed to be a professional league, but I considered it amateur. It was a higher standard of play, sure, but nobody was making any money. It was a joke. There was no money to be had. I got $3 for expenses with the Ukrainian Nationals to practice and $6 on game days. Every two or three years, players would leave because of management problems, coaching problems. You coach yourself, really. Somebody just made out the lineup. The weather was always a problem, scheduling was never stable. A lot of teams came in with a lot of enthusiasm and found that they couldn't exist financially. Polish Falcons, Ludlow in Massachusetts, New York, Brookhatton, and so on. So, I mean, he, um, uh, you yeah, he gives a pretty good idea of just what they were doing. I mean, it was a, it was a glorified beer league in that you, uh, you showed up when you could, you made practice when you could because you, everyone had day jobs and you got some pocket money. Um, I mean, that that's professional in the truest sense of, uh, of the word and that, I showed up and you gave me money to play, but to argue that that's professional in the sense that uh, we consider professional, particularly when we're talking about professional sports, is 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 just silly. Uh, and that's what they were looking at you know, as as the as the the age of inter Brooklyn Italian and uh, and and uh, you know, Ukrainian nationals, Hokoa Americans, Newark Portuguese. You know, even, even going into the, 19, the, the 1970s, uh, what was still very much an ethnic soccer league, uh, again, co- ostensibly competing against the North American Soccer League, which, um, you know, while far from flourishing, was at least trying to play in, in actual stadiums as opposed to, as you point out, the Metropolitan Oval or high school fields. Um, uh, and, and it in that had really kind of petered out at the end of the 1970 season to the point where there was really only uh, two teams left, uh, the Boston Astros and, and the Philadelphia Spartans. And uh, and uh, it ultimately fell on the shoulders of one man to keep it going. And, uh, and, and the, the path he chose to take was finally Americanizing this league and providing a place where American kids could play.
0: All right, before we get into who that person was and that sort of next step, back up for one quick second. And, you know, you mentioned the uh, International Soccer League, the Bill Cox uh, sort of run, uh, I guess, precursor to maybe arguably what is today things like the uh, uh, ICC, you know, the importation literally of full teams and having them sort of play an exhibition schedule and even competitively during the summer months. Uh, It it sounds like that was sort of an existential threat to the ASL's charter, and it's a a unique position to own, if you will, professionalism on the East Coast at that time. But it's interesting to me, why did they not maybe use that uh, challenge and having beaten off, I guess, that challenge, so to speak, uh, as the opportunity to maybe kind of do what ultimately came after the 66 World Cup and two or even three, depending on your read of history, groups from the outside that said, we want to go big league with soccer. I mean, it sounds to me naively, that, you know, the ASL lost the opportunity and needed the fledgling then NASL, although albeit fle- itself floundering in 1970-ish, to kind of kick him in the butt to realize that there is an opportunity to do that. I, I guess if that's any, any portion of that is correct, why was it so dormant and or, you know, not ambitious given some of those rumblings and those existential challenges
1: before this? Well, I think it's important to remember that the opportunity that the ASL was protecting when it played its card and forced the uh, US FFA get the initials missed on, whatever the U.S. soccer to, to step on the International Soccer League was not because the American Soccer League was afraid that, oh, someone's going to step on our status as a professional league. It was solely because the ISL was cutting into ASL profits in the world of foreign tours of bringing those other teams over. Um, the ASL wasn't interested in, in the opportunity of being a major league uh, because, again, and I, and I don't want to overstate the point because it's it particularly given the tenor uh, of the times on, on the issue of immigration, but, um, it really, again, it, it must be remembered the American Soccer League was really just a group of ethnic social clubs with teams playing for the pride of the motherland. Um, now, again, they, they would use whatever players they could to bring them that glory. I mean, some of the later Ukrainian national sides winning Open Cups in the mid uh, and later 60s featured Brazilians and, and what have you. If you could play, you could play. Um, but in the end, what the real interest of the club owners was glorifying the motherland. It wasn't in growing the game. It wasn't in developing an American talent. And it certainly wasn't in, um, you know, uh, just having a professional soccer like in their defense, they weren't equipped for it. They didn't have the money to actually you know, throw in the money and, uh, and, and, and try to compete and get television contracts and things like that. It just wasn't in the ASL's DNA. And, and again, that's why uh, you would think the way they fought the ISL, you'd think they would have fought just as hard against those two or three competing professional groups popping up in late 1966, uh, You know, reminding USSF, hey, you know, here we are. Don't forget us. We're here. You, we we had this exclusive right. No, they, they they stepped out of the way. Historically, they the ASL had done that on several occasions prior. I mean, back in 1946, for instance. Um, again, the war is over. The Second World War is over. American servicemen had been exposed to the game of soccer while while fighting in Europe. There's some interest in it, uh, and uh, there was uh, the, the, the individuals were interested in, in maybe sort of further professionalizing the game and there's a group of teams in the Midwest, Chicago and Detroit, who approached the ASL and said, hey, we'd like to be a Western division. And the ASL said, eh, no thanks, too much travel. And so those those individuals instead formed the North American Soccer Football League, which lasted about a year and a half. I mean, But again, the ASL's opportunity to sort of expand beyond its backyard and, and be something more than just a glorified uh, Sunday league they, they 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 took a pass on with no regret because it just wasn't something that group of individuals at that time was interested in. All
0: right, so you hinted at it earlier before that question. Circa, let's get into like 1971, right? So what's changing now in 71? And I and I'll give our audience a bit of a sort of a framing and a, and, a, and a hint that you know. The this sort of North American soccer league, which had had a couple of years under its belt uh, after a relatively chaotic start uh, in '67 and then '68 as its as its own merged unit, uh, itself was not doing all that well. The the proverbial top tier, if you will, and put that in quotes, of professional soccer in this country was, uh, as history shows, down to five teams and and not looking very healthy itself. But but give us the state of this ASL in 1971. You're mentioning this really itself was only down to two teams. What happens and what transpires that, uh, to, sort, to begin to change some of that and why?
1: Well, I guess the, the final nail in the ASL's, uh, the ethnic era of the ASL's coffin was, as you point out, 1968, utter collapse of the NASL. It survived in the 69 through the work of, of Phil Luskin to cajole five teams and st- sticking it out. And nearing the end of the 1969 season, the Baltimore Bay say we can't do this anymore. Uh, the Orioles, uh, the baseball team, were pulling uh, funding. We can't do this anymore. And Wozum's kind of in a panic. He knows he can't run a 14 league. So where did he go? He reached down to the ASL, who in '68 had uh, had recently expanded a little bit beyond their traditional New York, Northern New Jersey, Philadelphia, um, and, and Baltimore. Um, uh, the, the, the territory, and put teams in, in Washington, D.C., and Rochester, the, Wa- the Rochester Lancers and the, and the Washington Darts. Um, and in 1969, the Lancers beat the Darts to win the ASL title. And in 1970, Woosnam had lured them into coming to the North American Soccer League. Yes, there we say it, two teams got promoted from the ASL to the NSL. But with that i mean the a s l kind of i think the 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 old guard of again the the ethnic era of the a s l saw the writing on the wall uh, basically anyone who has ambition to really promote soccer and be a soccer team, and the lancers weren't a social an ethnic club the darts weren't uh you know an ethnic club as opposed to New York inter and some of the other teams that were there they they kind of realized we can't keep this going. Why bother? So you get to 1971, the Ukrainian Nationals, one of uh, the ASL's most storied teams, and and with the lineage it goes all the way back to '33. If you count, you know, Philadelphia Germans and Philadelphia Nationals, uh, you know, the the, the 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 franchises that developed, it jumped to an amateur league. You know, Newark Stitch couldn't find a field anymore. You only had the Boston Nationals and the Philadelphia Spartans, and everyone kind of had enough. And then up steps um, we mentioned Walter Chisowitz. Uh Well, he also he had a brother, Eugene Chiswick, who was also good player, good coach, and he stepped in, took over as league president in 1971, and just started hustling. Um, uh, his his first big coup was to uh, convince the New York Greeks, who were the uh, three time Open Cup winners from 67 to 69, got them to join the league, and then because at that point he, he needed teams. Uh, was pretty much willing to place a team anywhere, willing to host a team. Managers of the team, manages to place teams in Syracuse and Virginia. Um, and only played you know, so, so in 1971, you know, he, he managed to cobble together a five-team league, only played 10 games, but he kept the league going. And more to the point, he had a plan. And he started telling anyone who would listen that, and this was his phrase, he was going to make the American soccer league, quote, the American league, for the American boy, and and at that moment, you know at least conceptually, the American Soccer League was no longer just a loose confederation of ethnic social clubs. It was now going to be a truly professional league. Uh, and again, no different than the NASL, just how professional as far as you still had to work day jobs and things like that is it, open to question. But at least now it was going to hold itself out as a soccer league, as a as a, a professional soccer league and uh, And while not challenge the NASL, at least initially, certainly provide an alternative uh, again, primarily focusing on as opposed to the NASL, we are going to let Americans play. I mean, in fact, just the first thing uh, Gene Chidzewitz did was he announced that uh, all teams in the ASL would be re- required to carry four Americans on the roster with two in the starting lineup and While that may not sound like much it's uh it's you know it's four and two more than the NASL was requiring at that time.
0: So that sounds like a little bit of of opportunism, but also a bit of of vision, right? I mean, and I guess it takes a a little of both, right? Because you look at 1971, I mean, the NASL is just starting to maybe regain a little bit of its footing after some very dark years and some gigantic ambitions just a few years prior. I mean, it almost feels like on some level, he's thinking that the NASL will continue and or continue maybe to gain some strength, but but with a sort of a more, I don't know, a, a splashier kind of uh, approach, and, and the ASL could differentiate itself, albeit maybe in a smaller kind of manner, accordingly. So uh, is that a fair assessment, or is he just trying to survive and just do his do soccer a different way that he thought was more sustainable?
1: It's probably a little of both. I mean, he certainly saw an opportunity in that, again, as of 1971, unless you were on the St. Louis Stars, as an American, you had virtually zero chance of playing this league. And if you were a native born American, less than zero, uh, again, unless you were on the stars. Um, so I, I think he saw both a business opportunity, again, providing an alternative, um, you know, sort of like the ABA will give you playground basketball as opposed to the stodgy, you know, um, uh, gym style. The NBA was playing, you know, very structured, but it was, uh, but I, I do think, you know, Gene Chisowitz, was a believer in the American player. He wanted to see the game Americanized. So it, the, it was a it was both a vision and an opportunity. Um, but it's interesting to point out, because as you know, you know the NESL survived 69, survived 70. In 71, they had the New York Cosmos, uh, which is important, not, not only because they're back in New York, but because Warner Brothers Communications owns the team. And while they weren't pumping cash into it right away, it, it was a, a high-profile owner. It certainly helps attract other owners. By 72, you know, meanwhile, the, the ASL, one year after barely surviving itself, in, in keeping with Gene Chisowitz's goal to Americanize the league, the first thing he does is, you know, the press called it a merger, but it really wasn't, but he affiliates with New Jersey Schaefer Soccer League, uh, a, a, a very competitive North Jersey league sponsored by Schaefer Beer. Um, Schaefer Beer, which had one of the great all-time slogans, which you will never hear again, Schaefer is the one beer to have when you're having more than one.
0: Oh, I remember um, it vividly, of course. Yeah, I, can, I can sing the jingle yeah, for you, too, but I, I will not uh, burden yeah, or yeah,
1: listen. Yeah, can you imagine doing that today? But after, after filling with, with one of the major junior circuits, because, again, his goal was to be a developmental league for the American player, he adds nine teams. I mean, in 1972, the ASL has 12 teams. It's actually larger than the ASL at this point, although, admittedly, Nine of, uh, most of those teams are brand new, you know, but he moves to the Midwest, the Cincinnati Comets entered the league who we referenced earlier. Um, and you know, Walter Giesler, who features prominently in American soccer history. And the, uh, he pops up in the miracle match. If anyone's seen that, uh, entertaining movie about the 1950 world cup team, he owns the St. Louis frog. St. Louis is finally going to dip its toe in a national professional league as opposed to its regional league. And, and, and the goal is American players. I mean, the Delaware Wings, the the Nor'easters, uh, based out of North Jersey, hundred percent American players. Uh, you know, the, the the rosters are really being filled with Americans. You know, the New York Greeks are holding on. Um, the the Boston Astros are still largely Portuguese, but uh, everyone else is you know signing up with the concept of yeah, we're going to provide American soccer for the American fan, and and you know it leads to some uh, in that. In the, in the period from 71 to 74, which is when we see the next break um, with the hiring of Bill Cousy as commissioner, you, you see um, uh, things, you know, the, uh, in 73, Chiswick finally bans ethnic nicknames. You can know, think about that. nineteen seventy three 1973, uh, for 40 years in the league's history, he finally bans ethnic nicknames. And you see in 74, you know, for all the fuss about Freddie Adu, he was 14, allegedly, when he was signed the Boston Astros in 74 had a 16 year old kid named Steve Hayes playing for them. I mean, these teams, they were, they, they were all in um, with the, uh, with the Americanization thing, but you know, they were still struggling to get noticed because it's still largely a, a uh, Northeast league, notwithstanding the presence of the Comets and, you know, Chicago cats and things like that. It's still primarily you know in the Northeast corridor. And of course, by 74, I mean by 73 the NASL with the Philadelphia Adams takes a big step forward towards you know uh, getting national recognition they get on the cover of Sports Illustrated um, 74 the the NASL has a very successful west coast expansion and and the ASL finds itself falling behind again so the the, the thought was we need to take the next step towards becoming professional let's hire a commissioner and let's hire a commissioner who's going to get us some publicity and so they hired uh, Bill Cousy, who uh, is a name known to most Americans, but not for soccer. He was a great basketball player. And that starts the, the real era uh, of, of the ASL trying to be a competitor slash alternative to the NASL, which is you know, basically 1975 until its demise in 83. Well,
0: we'll get to Cousy in, a, in just a second, but, but uh, just to underline your sort of point about sort of the uh, move away from, uh, shall we say, uh, overt ethnicity, uh, you know, a, an important uh, change was the uh, New York Greeks, who had, who had won uh, the championship. I think in what seventy one was it of the ASL? Maybe seventy two. I, f- I forget which, somewhere around there. Uh, they no, seventy
1: one. Here they came in seventy one, and they were always among one of the league's top teams.
0: Right, and they changed their name to the New York Apollo, which you know Long Islanders will remember in the latter part of the of the seventies. We'll talk about that in a few minutes. Uh, you know, became sort of one of the uh, stronger or remained, if you will. Stronger. But it's also interesting, too, because that sort of that ethnicity thing, that sort of ethnic sort of root uh, rooting of of, of clubs and, 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 and league play and stuff. That was even something that uh, even the NASL couldn't uh, rid itself of until in probably more uh, visible terms until 1976, until after uh, the Toronto metros, which were really, Metro's Croatia at that point won the entire championship, much to the chagrin of Phil Phil Wisdom and the NASL. Uh, you know, it really wasn't until after that, that they were able to sort of officially, you know, get rid of any sort of uh, overt ethnic uh, labels. But it's it's an interesting it's an interesting uh, component of all this history because, frankly, without many generations of of uh, immigrants to this country, you wouldn't even be, frankly, in a position even in the early seventies to even begin to. Uh, think about how to sort of, quote-unquote, Americanize the game with pure American players and talent, given how relatively nascent and still very ethnic the sport was, especially at the professional
1: level in this country? No, I mean, and make no mistake, for as much as I will criticize the second American soccer league for its failure to grow the game, frankly, in both versions, both in its ethnic version, and, and and they kind of stepped all over themselves in its you know in the latter uh, in its latter era, uh, when it had not, when it had an opportunity to really provide an alternative to the North American Soccer League and, and just just again just couldn't get out of its own way, you know that that's not the fault the players, that's not the fault the immigrant communities that supported the game that otherwise well, I guess could have virtually disappeared like say cricket, right? Um, it, it, but for the uh, the uh, participation and support. Uh, of folks who may have been out there waving the banner of the homeland because of ethnic pride, but they're also out there because they love the game. And, and, and you're exactly right. I mean, you know, if if the, if the American Soccer League in, 19, in 1933 disappeared by, say, World War II, and, 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 and there wasn't anything at all uh, that even remotely resembled the professional league, yeah, who knows whether 1966 would have happened, even with all the excitement over the World Cup and everything else. Whether 1966 would have happened, never mind. You know, getting uh, Pele uh, to uh, be willing to come out of retirement and, and, and play uh, here in this country. So, yeah, I mean, while the powers that be that ran the American Soccer League in in both versions that we've been talking about um, deserve a lot of criticism for their mishandling of ver- various opportunities, the players and the fans are above reproach. I mean, they did their jobs, and that's and as you say, and because of that. We're having this discussion now.
0: All right, what's this? The Arizona Office of Tourism spring training. Oh my God. Hey, this spring, follow your favorite baseball teams to Arizona for Cactus League spring training. Amazing weather and landscapes, exciting outdoor adventure, incredible food, Arizona. It's the perfect home base for baseball fans. Follow your favorite baseball teams to Arizona for Cactus League spring training. Ten stadiums, 15 Major League Baseball teams, and 75-degree temperatures. Ah, awesome. And all ten stadiums are in the greater Phoenix area, all within 50 miles of the city. Meet players, get autographs before the games, and just enjoy an old-fashioned ballpark experience in beautiful preseason weather down in Arizona. Check out amazing restaurants and bars nearby, including tons of craft breweries like Four Peaks, Angel's Trumpet Ale House, and Goldwater Brewing Company. Enjoy live music from local and national artists and explore museums featuring everything from native heritage to modern art to musical instruments from around the world and more. Arizona is known for its incredible landscapes too, as well as thrilling outdoor adventures. So hit the road and explore Arizona's urban centers or ghost towns or artsy communities or quirky outposts. You can hike, you can bike, you can take Jeep tours, hot air balloon rides, skydiving, jet skiing, or just taking in a good old-fashioned sunset. No matter what you love to do, Arizona has you covered. Check out must-see destinations from your bucket list like the Grand Canyon, Monument Valley, Horseshoe Bend, and even the great Old West City of Tucson. Bringing the kids along for spring training? Hey, Arizona's a fantastic destination for families, too. Family-friendly resorts and hotels offer plenty of fun, for kids of all ages, from water parks to horseback rides to games and activities. Arizona also has tons of stuff for kids to do and see, like wildlife parks and science museums, aquariums, and even dude ranches. So what are you waiting for? Plan now for your spring training getaway at visitarizona.com slash spring training. That's visitarizona.com slash spring training. Hey, and don't forget, send us a postcard. I'd love to hear a little bit more about Bob Cousy and how he gets recruited into being the commissioner of this fledgling in the shadow of the bigger NASL American Soccer League. And and I I really don't know much of the story. Maybe you you can help fill in some gaps. And is there any stuff that you know about, about sort of like how it crosses his radar, why – the league felt that they needed a big name from another sport to kind of sort of burnish their image a bit more. Like why him versus others? Were there others considered or, or thought about? And, and frankly, is this Gene Chisowitz? I always get the name. That's tough for me. Uh, did Gene and, his, and, and the, the board, I guess, w- were they the ones kind of pulling the strings to kind of make that happen? Or was it more of a happenstantial kind of thing?
1: Well, Gene Gene was a coach at heart, and 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 you know, he wanted to go and, and go back and uh, get back involved with the Apollo, um, and I, I I think growing the league beyond its its um, uh, brown paper bag origins, if you will, of again still predominantly in the Northeast, was just beyond his ken, and and you you, you started to have you know not big money man again it still wasn't the North American Soccer League, but you had uh, new money coming into the league that fancied themselves as as, uh, as being a little more visionary, a little more business savvy. That the thought was, no, we just need a splash, and uh, and I think they took their cues in some ways from you know, the American Basketball Association when when they needed a commissioner, they went to George Mikan. Now it helped that Mikan was at least a basketball player, but at the time he was one of the most famous uh, basketball players of the era. So having him speak for your league was uh, was was not a bad thing. And you know just how Hoosie came to be the man is kind of lost to history because again one of the other problems with the American Soccer League is that even in soccer media at the time which was predominantly Soccer America a weekly uh, newspaper um didn't spend a whole lot of time covering the ASL. Uh but what I but what I have heard was you know essentially the research was we need a name that people will recognize, um, who's not really otherwise engaged. Um, you know, for instance, you might've thought, Oh, we'll, we'll get Will Chamberlain, but he was still depending on what he, what, what mood he was in at the time, either still planning to play for the San Diego conquistadors in the ABA or was getting ready to get involved with the international volleyball association. So he was kind of busy, but Cousy was out there, all American name, beloved basketball player star with the Celtics. And, um, if memory serves, just someone in the ASL group happened to know him, happened to approach him. He freely admitted in early interviews he didn't know a thing about the game of soccer, but he was here to be a commissioner, so here I am, and uh, and uh, and they signed him up, and, and it worked. I mean, it got the ASL in the newspapers because you know the newspapers were reporting, basketball legend is commissioner of soccer league, eh? you know, um, so it worked, and and Kuzi's presence you know, again, much like Mike in the ABA as commissioner. He wasn't just there to govern the league. Uh, he was there to meet people. He was there to energize investors. And again, I guess the thought was talking to a, talking to someone who might be willing to invest in pro soccer. It might be far more exciting for him to meet our commissioner, the legendary Boston Celtics guard, Bob Cousy, as opposed to, Hey, come meet Gene Chisowitz, brother of Walt Chisowitz, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't quite have the same bang to it. Um, so he got the job, and uh, and you know, it's questionable what he'd do for his money because, again, the league was uh, largely operated by various presidents working underneath him during his tenure. But, it, you know, it did. It It, it had the desired effect. It, it put the ASL on the map, and the league started growing. It started getting out to the West Coast, started, um, you know, making splashes as far as Challenging the NASL for top college draft picks and things like that. So, um, while it remains a mystery as to just how it wound up being him, and history has shown it wasn't a terrible move on the NASL's part.
0: Well, he is actually still with us. I know he's well into his nineties, and I, I honestly yes. don't know if any of our listeners uh, either have a, a, a reach to uh, reach out capability to him, or if he's even uh, you know even uh, had the capacity to to cut kind of talk. But it'd be a fascinating chat for sure as to maybe get to some of the some of the rationale that he was thinking and and, and and what of this league that he saw was was worthwhile but I, I maybe I could use this point now we're talking basically the end of 1974 if you're keeping tabs at home on your calendars the I guess my question at this point is now just put it let's put it in context right Pele still is six to seven months away from being announced as uh, the newest signing of the New York cosmos right so this is this is half a year before any of that so I guess my real General question around this period of time is uh, it's it seems to me that at once the the ASL uh, recognizes that the NASL is growing in a lot of different ways right there's the national television coverage of the the seventy four championship game and you know the the West Coast expansion and San Jose and, and the like is 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 uh, is doing quite well it certainly has resuscitated itself and then some but yet I also see, sort of see it, uh, that. They're probably looking at it as a somewhat of a threat, right, because they're starting to feel that they can be professional on themselves, albeit in a sort of more differentiated sort of American kind of path. I guess here's the question. Uh, Does the ASL at this point prior to and then just after Kuzi's arrival, are they looking at themselves as a true challenger to this now somewhat more stable NASL or are they kind of just betting that the NASL is on its way and we are going to. I don't know, for lack of a better word, supplement it in our own American-centric way, almost like a, dare I say it, second division kind of structure.
1: I think at that point, you have a split in the ranks in the ASL. I think you see new owners coming in who want to be a direct challenge. They see, they see that there's a future for professional soccer, but they want to get in on the cheap. They don't want to pay NASL expansion fees. Uh, they'd rather be a part of this other league that... You know, has history, uh, which which is marketable to a point, but nevertheless, be full-blown challengers. Then you have you know, another contingent in the league, some of the the older guard, who are content to be professional. You know, continue to follow the Chisenhaw's goal of Ameri- be, you know, Americanizing and, and being a little more professional, but going with the rising tide approach. You know, as, as you indicate, will be a will be a will be a minor league. we Will be Triple A, and in fact. You know, as the tide rises, maybe we'll we'll wind up merging, uh, but like in a passive sense, and that split um, was was a cause for again. I, I keep mentioning missed opportunities by the American Soccer League. You know, Pele, as we all know, signed here in June of '75. What's not as fondly remembered is that in February of '75, George Best uh, of Manchester United fame had committed to signing with the New York Cosmos and then just disappeared, just stopped returning uh, Clive Toy's calls. And that would have been a splash. But meanwhile, in the American Soccer League, there was a team, uh, 1974, uh, Rhode Island Oceaneers, expansion team, coached by Manny Shellshide, who was on the Amer- Philadelphia Adams, the NASL champions the year before, primarily American team, had a kid named Arnie Mauser playing goal for them. Uh, very good team. But they realized between the, the NASL's Boston team, uh, the Minutemen, and in 75, the NASL was expanding to Hartford with the Bicentennials, that the, the, uh, the, 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 Ro- the Oceaneers realized they had some stiff competition. So they had the opportunity to make a splash themselves and sign Eusebio, the Black Pearl, the second greatest player in the world uh, by consensus at that point, to Pelé you know portuguese star uh, be, uh you know so his name alone would be quite cool uh being portuguese uh it would give him a uh, it would give Rhode Island a real leg up in that er- in that area against Hartford and against Boston because there was a significant uh portuguese community in New England and you know and, and they had the opportunity to sign him but he would have been expensive i mean he was he certainly um, what he was seeking was more than what uh pretty much all ASL players were making so you know, the the Oceaneers tried to take a page out of the Winnipeg Jets playbook in the in the World Hockey Association in seventy two. They said, hey, getting Eusebio here will help the entire league. Eusebio's presence here will will, will give us a player that even the NASL doesn't have. It'll it'll bounce the entire league. So you should help us sign this guy. And and, and the other owners were just no, you know, we're not interested. Some of them have never heard of Eusebio. Others are like, no, we're not that interested. So an opportunity was missed, and Eusebio wound up signing with the Boston Minutemen in the NASL. So, I mean, that's just – that's even as the league attempted to grow, it was still – I've used the phrase, you know, tripping over itself. It, it never, ever, up until the end, was ever in a position where everyone was on the same page and pointing in the same direction. And that's, and that's a prime example. You know, that, if Eusebio signs at the ASL, at that moment, it might have been considered by many as an equal to the NASL. And then, and then pre Pele, maybe uh, merger talks start sooner. I mean, there's a lot of maybes and what ifs. But you know, that that would have been a, a huge deal for the American Soccer League at that moment, at a time when the NASL hadn't really signed anyone big yet, and, um, and has indeed failed to sign George Best. And and it would have certainly put them on the map. But again, they didn't have the vision. Some, at least, a, a enough owners did not have the vision to appreciate what signing you say would bring to the league and they let the, and they let the moment pass
0: that's 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 very interesting and and not only do you wonder about that but i also i, also, I guess i my twin wonder there is is where is somebody like Kuzi who you know a big name commissioner to not only generate attention for the league arguably you know a commissioner such as that should be maybe managing this situation appropriately for the league's benefit um i guess where was the management there for to sort of make that situation not go the way it did
1: no you're right in fact there was a lot of criticism i mean he was only a few months into his tenure at that point but a lot of people at the time were asking the same questions like wait a minute we we brought in koozie to sort of rein us in and not only attract investors but kind of rein us in too um but you know you still had uh, you know some of the older clubs you know while the league while the league may have been trying to be americanized i think among the ownership you still had a lot of that ethnic social club mentality and while cruzy would have been a, it was a big name and got them in the newspapers soccer men had no respect for him because again, he he hadn't played the game he knew nothing about it so him pounding the table uh you know trying to convince someone to spend their money to make another team better because it'll benefit the league as a whole, you know, uh, you could just imagine the New York Apollo not being interested. Hey, we're winning. We draw reasonably well. Nah, yeah. Let them get their own player. So yeah, from the very, I mean, I, I think more to your point, while again, the Kuzi hiring did what it was supposed to do as far as publicity. Um, uh, you know, from the very start, his, his, uh, his, in, in, um, I wouldn't say his ineptitude, but just his inability to, to, to through force of his World wars personality, make a game-changing event like this happen, um, just, just showed that ultimately it really was just a publicity hire, and the league was still going to be largely rudderless, which was going to be a problem.
0: Well, it seemed it seemed even at the uh, the end of the seventy-five season, uh, the playoffs and the, the the determination of a champion was also uh, wishy-washily handled
1: too. Exactly. I mean, you had. Is uh, you know too many overtimes, so he just throws hands in the air and say, Ah, Boston, New York, co-champions, go home. You know, and, yeah, that's that's uh, that's uh, 75 was an odd year that way. I mean, it, you, you know, they miss out on Eusebio. You um, alternatively, because and again, here's where the, the rising tide comes in. Pele signs with the Cosmos. Sports Illustrated is finally paying a little attention to soccer and those of us who finally remember when Sports Illustrated was a real sports magazine you know with, with with news and stats as opposed to the human interest stuff it's doing now it's they had a back page called scoreboard uh, near the, near the end of the, near the end of the magazine called scoreboard that would sum up what was what was going on in the various sports and in soccer they were also covering the ASL i mean while Pele had brought the attention you know the powers that be at SI at the time Recognize hey, there's a league here too that's worth talking about, and and so it was getting publicity. It would get mentioned in the weekly summary, you know, and, and you'd see little tidbits like, uh, you know, only in the A.S.L. would you see that, uh, you know, Cleveland won a game uh, on the back of a goal by Cleveland Cobras G.M. slash player Jim McMillan. Uh, if a if a G.M. ever played uh, before or since, uh, I, I, I I don't know. I don't know, if, I don't know if Mario Lemieux counts. He was an owner, but you know, it's I mean, they, they they again. The opportunity was there. People were looking to see what would happen, and instead, you're right. You have a final that peters out into ah. Okay, you're co-champions because one team actually it was one team wasn't interested in, in doing a replay. Uh, I think it was Boston said, you know, we we don't. <laughs> we're going to lose money. We we don't. We don't. We're not going to play another game. We're not going to do a replay. So cause instead of ordering them to, it said, okay fine. We'll have co-champions. Um, but even in that even in that moment, when at least up until Pele's arrival, there, there might have been an argument. Hey, these two teams are relatively equal. I mean, probably some of the best ASL teams could have beat them. some of the better NASL teams. You saw a huge difference. I mean, the attendance in the ASL was two thousand two hundred a game at the end of nineteen seventy five. The NASL, admittedly with a, a big uh, post Pele bump, uh, was at seven thousand nine thirty. So there was, you know there, there was. Uh, as far as the fan base, you know, the, the people saw the North American soccer league as the prime product. And, and again, the ASL well, was, was laboring to try to combat that. And its next step to try to combat that was in 76 when after two years of planning, they, they finally accomplished their West Coast expansion, which, which brought good news and bad news. I mean, for again, the ASL one step forward, two steps back.
0: Well, let's talk about that in 76. Also interesting, too, because uh, not only does it seem like more players seem to be getting picked away uh, from the ASL to go to the NASL, uh, you know, I've seen a number of players like, uh, well, you mentioned a, a few, uh, like Arnie uh, uh, Mauser. Was it Arnie Mauser?
1: Yeah, like Arnie Mauser, 1973 ASL Rookie of the Year. Doug McMillan is uh, also the 1974 NASL Rookie of the Year because he jumped for the Los Angeles Aztecs. Um, yeah, there was uh, there was a lot of that. Ringo Cantillo.
0: Ringo Cantillo, of uh, course, big big yeah, uh, ASL sir. Yeah.
1: yeah, yeah, huge huge figure in the ASL with the Cincinnati Comets, jumped to the Tampa Bay Roddies in '75. And the ASL had more money, and that and that was and that was uh, that was a problem that the the ASL would be fighting till the end of its days because, because for all its vision, it could never attract the real money. Uh, for one of a better way to characterize it, it could, it could never attract the real money to come on board because. They would see the North American Soccer League, a more rapidly growing product. It, got on, it had Pele, so they got back on television. It fits and starts, it um, was a national league. I mean, if, if I was going to invest in soccer, um, and again, in this era, we're talking about who are, people who are investing because they wanted to be sports moguls. The era of someone actually having the vision to, to develop soccer hadn't yet arrived. I mean, they were going to choose the NASL every time, and the players were in the same boat. But in seventy, but it's interesting because in seventy six, you have an example where the the ASL actually pulled off a coup. Um, Brown University had a defender named Steve Rabowski, who was a hot property, so hot that the the uh, the Los Angeles Aztecs traded uh, I think it was seven players to the San Antonio Thunder uh, for their first pick in the NASL draft, the first overall pick. And and the Aztecs drafted Robofsky. Well, the brand-new Los Angeles Skyhawks, coached by Ron Newman, a storied NASL coach, a one-time NASL champion with the Dallas Tornado in 71, also drafted Robofsky. And Robofsky signed with the ASL team. Again, the type of thing, if you remember the ABA-NBA wars, I mean, the ABA started making real inroads when they were signing college stars, admittedly by you know, kind of cheating by drafting them as underclassmen. But you know, here's an opportunity. And uh uh but within a year the Skyhawks manage while winning the ASL title, managed to find ways not to pay Newman and Robowski and within a year they're both back in the ASL. Uh it's uh, just a you know a classic, classic example. You know, again, one step forward, two steps back, largely because the ASL, since they couldn't get again that real money I was talking about, would be inclined to take anyone willing to invest and as these minor sports uh, or startup sports if you will have shown whether it was the early aba the early wha early box across uh professional box across the willingness to take anybody because you just want someone to get involved never works because it, it, it turns out you know it, uh, the wfl being a prime example you know like ownership groups of 50 people in them it, it doesn't work and, and that's and that, that was a problem the asl kept running up against in that era when it was trying to challenge the NASL.
0: Well, it, it almost seems though, too, that they were, uh, so you, that said, right, it also seems like the ASL is, is in its own way trying to, albeit from a differentiated standpoint, align itself or mimic the NASL in some way, shape or form. Like if we have this, the point system, right, which, you know, we, we've gone back and forth on, on various episodes. I actually tend to think it's actually, it was a good thing, right, where you incentivize not only winning, uh, but also, Scoring right and getting extra points for that stuff. Where so it looks like the ASL kind of created their own sort of almost almost carbon copy of this uh, quote unquote Newman system that that did indeed those things. So that almost feels.
1: I was going to say the Newman system, which is comical because it was basically the NASL system, except you got five points for a win, not six. But it's called the Newman
0: system, yes. Sure. But my point, though, is that that's almost, you know, while we're sort of grinding our teeth sort of at the bigger, more established, I guess, or at least wealthier, supposedly, North American Soccer League, you know, here we are, you know, trying to emulate and or align ourselves. And it does sound like that other half of the group that you're talking about, you know, wants to go maybe more directly competitive at some point or or soon thereafter to kind of maybe challenge the NASL more directly.
1: Yes, and I think, and and you start seeing that post-1977 when, uh, again, the ASL, uh, these these owners weren't complete idiots. They kind of recognized they've lost a few opportunities. They were letting, uh, they were not properly vetting owners or what have you. In 1977, they formed American Soccer League Management, Inc. to basically do what they thought they'd hired Koozie to do, and that is, you know, sort of, Handle the management end of things and marshal things, and from from uh, from things as basic as hey, we're gonna have an we're gonna I think it was with Voigt that had the deal. We're gonna have an official ASL ball, and it's gonna have our seal, and we're gonna get and we're gonna get a royalty on every ball that's sold. You know, marketing and you know in the beginning of like the more modern approach to um, uh, sports business, um, and and with that you start seeing, yeah, look, you know people are going to the ASL, we. We still, I mean, the ASL still wanted to be American, still wanted to be traditional soccer. I mean, there was some people that chafed it, 35-yard lines and things like that. But I guess, and of course, this is the year before ASLM, uh, but nevertheless, Newman was able to come in and say, yeah, look, I'm all for leaving the rules alone too, but there's nothing wrong with incentivizing scoring. So it's, you know, and, and not playing for a draw, it's too easy to win at home draw on the road and win a title. That's, that's conservative soccer. That's make a win worth something. Make it five points. Six is too much. Make it five. And we'll have the bonus goal to incentivize offense. Yeah. I mean, I, I, they, they saw that Americans want a more exciting product, but I think the ASL also saw themselves as well. We're still, you know, this is still soccer. We don't want to get crazy, but we can incentivize scoring and, and, you know, and yeah, we're going to copy the NASL in uh, that, the, the, that system did appear to generate offense. I mean, for as much as people hated it, and yeah, I mean, I, I was I was a Philadelphia Fury fan. They I mean, made the playoffs the first two years, being in last place each year largely as of bonus goals I mean, it's it's kind of silly with, with the, the point totals that would be generated, but one couldn't deny the fact that it was producing offensive soccer. Um, and so, yeah, they, they they certainly were looking at their big brothers, they were looking at that in the realm of expansion too. I mean, they. They'd, you know, the need to get to the West Coast and things like that. It, it was all with an eye towards, hey, the NASL is doing this and doing this successfully. We don't have the budgets to get big players. We're not going to sign a play. Um, but uh, but maybe we can do other things. Again, that's where it goes to. We'll we'll, we'll build a better mousetrap. This is going to be an American League. You get, Americans are going to get an opportunity to play. I mean, uh, and and that was true. I mean, many um, articles of the period, like Kevin Walsh, a prime example, and. Uh, in 76, I think he was with uh, Hartford. Didn't get off the bench. Trenton, New Jersey, did. Didn't get off the bench. In 77, he's playing with the New Jersey Americans, largely living up to their name. Largely uh, an American team, or uh, American born or American bred, if you will. You know, Ringo Cantillo's on the team. They win the title. But again, money being money, with the uh, great expansion in 78 in the NASL, Walsh is suddenly back in the NASL with the New England team. So. Same problem. I mean, the ASL's being—I guess—in a way, it was succeeding too well. It was playing Americans, it was developing Americans, or, or that second-tier player that otherwise might have escaped the NASL's radar, only and and, and, and only to get poached. So um, uh, that remained a problem. And again, the soccer—while that would today—that might be attractive. I mean, I could see in today's soccer community people finding something noble about that and going out and supporting that second tier team. And of course it would further ramp up the whole pro rel discussion, I guess at the time, the, 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 soccer community was not that sophisticated and, and, uh, and, and the ASL was, was, was not was it's best efforts, not seen as, Hey, here's an American alternative we should follow. It was seen as a minor league. And indeed it was probably, it seems a minor league and, and one kind of shackled by its history because it's You open up an an ASL media guide, and you read its list of champions, and it's Carney Scots, Carney Irish, New York Inter, Brooklyn Hispania, uh, Ukrainian Nationals, and imagine being a newer fan and wondering what kind of league am I following here? You know, it, it it was problematic.
0: It's also interesting around this time, too, the late 70s, right? It seems that you also had NASL poaching of ASL talent, but actually people coming from the NASL into the ASL themselves, right? Either on their way down or or having maybe a personal situation or, or maybe uh, falling out of favor with a particular team. So, I mean, for example, I mean, Sabio wound up coming back with the New Jersey Americans in the ASL. You had... Uh, people like um, uh, Ramon Mifflin and Realdo, who were part of the Cosmos in the sort of latter part of uh, Pele's uh, uh, tenure in the uh, with the New York Cosmos, going to the New York Eagles. I uh, also another observation too. So that it's an interesting sort of uh, uh, blending, I guess. Uh, albeit still, you know, top tier versus more secondary tier. But it does seem to me that the ASL also, for whatever reason, still couldn't shake this shakiness, if you will, of franchises you know, coming and going. And NASL certainly was <laughs> almost the pioneer in that too. But the ASL, in many respects, almost took it to different levels over the years prior because you had teams that would just collapse in the middle of the season. And I mean, that t- talk about uh, that's tremendous instability. But I guess the one other thing I'll sort of throw out there, and I know I'm sort of packing a lot into this semi-question, is you also look at some of these the cities that they're in and either to their credit or to their luck, I guess. I mean, you know, they, they're either supplementing in sort of outlier communities in and around where the NASL had a franchise. So for example, the New York Apollo, you know, being a dedicated Long Island team to that of the mostly New Jersey centric New York Cosmos, uh, or the New Jersey Americans, right. Being sort of in Southern New Jersey, right. So more metropolitan, but, but places like Cleveland or Indianapolis, like the daredevils or, you know, uh, Southern California lasers, which, you know, arguably drafted a bit off of, uh, Of some of the uh, the NASL or or Sacramento, right? That's a completely separate and new and untilled soil. Tacoma was part of that mix, and Rhode. I mean, so I guess the I guess the the general questions or observations is: Are we giving them too much credit, or are they just sort of going to places where they think they could make pro soccer go? That wasn't the NASL, and then does that also maybe help uh, this maybe attraction of talent in that? Uh, it gives uh, some talent that is either maybe on their way out or on their way up uh, some other places to go if they can't come to an NASL contract.
1: Yeah, I'll, I'll take the first part of that question first. You're right. I mean, the it, you saw people going back down to the ASL too, and it was largely over plenty of time. It was never for money. For instance, Eusebio, as you point out, Eusebio finally signed with the ASL in 1978. 1977, he was with the Las Vegas uh, Quicksilvers and the NASL, and it wasn't signed in 78. He signs with the New Jersey Americans in late July of 1978 for $20,000 to finish out the season. So he got $20,000 to basically play you know, six weeks. That was the highest salary in the league at the time. So again, it gives you an idea of how, how um, low budget the ASL remained, and notwithstanding that, they still couldn't keep franchises. Uh, and, and which goes to you know, the chaos part you were talking about, but you know, at that time, the you know they they were they were still kind of competing in NASL markets. They got the bright idea. So well, let's start going to where the NASL is not. Was that uh, was that seen as an attempt to grow the game in, in in other areas? Something that would be a valiant goal. Was that seen as Let's grab some of these other properties before the NASL does, and that way, again, if there comes times, there comes a time to talk merger. We're 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 we're, we're, we're a better footing. It's hard to say, but that's what you saw. First, it started with the West Coast expansion, and again, teams would come and teams would go. Um, but they they also looked beyond the obvious, and you saw like 1979 1980 was both the peak and the 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 best and the worst of this latter day American Soccer League in, in one fell swoop, and it starts with 79. in seventy nine. In seventy nine, the Pennsylvania Stoners joined the league, based out of Bethlehem, Allentown area, storied area for those who uh, you know love soccer history. You know the home of the old Bethlehem Steel powerhouse of the twenties. Half a million dollar franchise fee. I mean, ridiculous amount for the ASL. It's a huge amount of money, but this was a team. That was squarely in line with, with Gene Chiselwitz's original goal, even though he was long gone by that, uh, as far as involvement with the league. In that it was seven years in the making. Um, you know, Willie uh, Ehrlich, uh, who was the, the mover and shaker behind the team, uh, seven years developing basically an academy, what we would call an academy today. I mean, the Pennsylvania Stoners are today's MLS franchise in 1979, they entered the league in 79. 1980, the year starts in chaos. Cousy resigns. Joseph Raymond, who had been serving as league president and was owner of the New Jersey Americans, one of the more stronger, better-supported solvent teams yeah, of the league. Yeah, who,
0: who even, who even he, found Eddie Fermani from the, from the Cosmos. Uh, that was a big yeah, hire, right. too, he, he, right?
1: That's right. He grabbed him after he got, fired in, uh, by, by, uh, exactly. he got fired by the Cosmos in 79. He hired him, only, only again to lose him to the fury in 1980, uh, although there was a reason for that because Raymond – somehow is not re-elected as president, so in a fit of pique, he sells the New Jersey Americans to a London group who moved it to Miami. Um, they were going to expand the Phoenix. There was a team called the Phoenix Fire, coached by Jimmy Gabriel, hot off of uh, a couple successful years coaching the Seattle Sounders, including getting them to the 1977 Soccer Bowl final, um, signing uh, you know, NASL players, even had a couple exhibitions against uh, like the Mexican National B team didn't make it to the starting game, didn't have money. You know. Um uh, Rodney Marsh comes to the league, albeit as coach of New York United, the second New York area team. Yeah, he quits after 17 games. Uh, and, but in 19 but then that's the bad. Then you have the good. You know, the Pennsylvania Stoners, first American team to have a kit sponsor with Alpo. Uh no one else was doing that at the time. But I guess the perfect example of just how crazy the ASL was at that point can be found with the Sacramento gold, 1979, the Sacramento gold, won the ASL title, its owner was bragging about, uh, receiving offers to jump to the North American soccer league. But no, I'm staying here. I'm, I'm going to stay with the ASL by halfway through the 1980 season. It's taken over by the league. They're out of money taken over by the league eventually assumed by uh, community owners who say publicly, we're going to play home games and we're going to forfeit the road games. We can't afford to go on the road. We're going to forfeit the road games in order to keep costs down. They didn't actually do that. They sucked it up and they made it to the final. They made it to the ASL final, played in Allentown. They lost to the Pennsylvania Stoners, but the Stoners had to pay, had to give Sacramento 5,500 to cover the travel costs to get them there. So they didn't even they didn't show up to the final. I mean that's like quintessential asl at that time and of course at the end of the season the asl drops all of the west coast teams because it's too expensive travel wise and instead going to the point you made in the middle of your question instead they said hey we're now going to uh, develop the deep south the american south has been largely unserved by the north american soccer league um we are going to look to the south um uh, and that's what they did. You know, so, come 19, 19, 1981, you see uh, by by 82, you see four southern teams—Charlotte, uh, Georgia, and Nashville—start entering the mix. Uh, but you see uh, a form of relegation. The Detroit Express now join uh, the the American Soccer League. It's not really the same owners as the original Express, who moved to Washington um, in, in for the l a season, but. You start seeing, you know, you start, you know, it's funny. America's always had promotion and relegation. It's just been on business merit, not field merit. People don't want to hear that, but that's the case. Interestingly, though, there is a Western soccer league. I guess the West Coast having been abandoned, a Western soccer league, not the one that would later evolve into the A-League, popped up. Um, In 1982, there was talk of the ASL and the WSL, forming to merge something called the Union Soccer League. Not to be confused with the United Soccer League, which we'll talk about in eighty four. Of course it doesn't come out doesn't come off. But again, you just see, you know so here's the, the Pennsylvania Stoners. They they win the title in their second year. They develop their own players. I mean, again, the very prototype for what NLS teams want to do today, but by eighty three they're out of money. I mean it, it's it's uh, because Willie, uh, because Willie Ehrlich, uh, Ehrlich, who's very much a visionary, is like a lot of ASL owners, a visionary with no money. And that, and that was a constant problem this league had to deal with. And as you say, as you know, Jeff Bourne, Phil Parks, some storied NASL players are coming to finish their careers in the ASL. but And the, and the ASL is having success in Charlotte with Rodney Marsh's coach. Um, <coughs> excuse me. George is doing... Okay, at the gate. Now, I mean, the the southern expansion is 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 generating results, but the older teams, the you know, the New York teams, United, uh and, and Pennsylvania Stoners, they can't survive long enough to take advantage of it. Um, speaking of chaos, you know, in 1983, to give you an example, it's a season, it's the team, it's the league's last season. The Jacksonville team men relegate themselves from the NASL to the ASL because the owner believes in soccer but doesn't believe in spending any money to 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 prop it up there's like two sets of letterhead going out to the media one says american soccer league another says america's soccer league i mean there's just even at that late date and of course spoiler alert it's their last season but even at that late date they, you, the par, the powers that be could never get on the same page and know what they were doing and it's just, and that's why i get when i say i get upset about lost opportunity. You know, the ASL, in my view, particularly when the Pennsylvania Stoners came, the Stoners showed them what they could do, what they could bring to the table that the NASL wasn't. True community involvement, academies resulting in professional teams playing in a professional league. That that was very attractive. I mean, Ehrlich was underfunded, but crowds came out. The Stoners drew. You know, there's a model to be followed. And again, it was drop the ball. They dropped the ball because instead of convincing other owners to make that kind of investment, you know, start developing youth teams, start growing your own as it were. They didn't want to do that. Hey, we've been winning, picking up guys off the sandlots. Why do we have to do that? Uh, We'll go out down South instead. I'm sure there's a, well, well, expansion fees weren't that big. There's always that Ponzi scheme nature to expansion. Old guys been losing money. Start getting some money on the backs of the new guys. and, And and, and that was a real opportunity for the ASL to to make itself an attractive alternative to the NASL, which itself is is dying on the vine with aging foreign players that people don't really have a lot of interest in and American kids not being given the opportunity to play. You know, a vibrant ASL might have been the very place for FC Seattle to land. You know, if you remember, the FC Seattle was basically trying to take Pennsylvania Stoner's model and, and, and apply it out west. It would give them a place to play. It didn't work because, again, these guys could could just never get out of their own way. And it's a shame because, um, and while we're going to talk about the United United Soccer League in a second, which tried to do what I'm talking about now, um, if the ASL managed to pull that off, maybe we wouldn't have had you know the the 11 uh, year gap between major major league soccer uh, in this country. Which, uh, which, again, while we can sort of not worry so much about now because MLS is thriving, uh, for those of us who had to live through it, it it was it was a morbid period. Period that uh, we would have just been. uh, I would have been happy to have avoided.
0: Yeah. Again, it's also interesting too that uh, it it seems like a lot of the 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 latter years of the ASL's existence, almost it just looks in retrospect almost like you had people on different song sheets, right? I mean, for every you know, Detroit Express uh, in the ASL in 1982, you know, drawing 33,000 and change for their, you know, their final game, beating Oklahoma, right? Oklahoma City, right? The Slickers, yep. you know, another new market that, you know, uh, to, to their credit, the ASL was looking to see that that soccer Georgia, for example, Carolina Lightning, uh, modestly successful in their short tenure there as well. Yet you also had people kind of reaching for the stars. I mean, the New York United story, at some point, we'll go deeper into that. But, you know, go, going to Shea Stadium, I remember vividly, I think yeah. the attendance for some of those home games, and and pretty well publicized, by the way, were like in the hundreds at Shea Stadium. The Cavern is 55,000-seat Shea Stadium. So, you know, it, but it just, it, you know, I, I'm sure this is another sort of piece of evidence where you know, and and having read Soccer America during that period of time on a weekly basis, you look at the Agate and you look at the the attendances, and some of them were were woeful and like, well, what's going on here? And then some were actually quite surprising. And I think some of that was the halo of the NASL, albeit uh, having sort of uh, itself sort of uh, uh, on its way down. But I think it's it's lost in all of this. And you guys, you mentioned this in in some of your writings on the uh, on the American uh, Soccer History uh, site. You've got um, you know the, the attendance was you know, maybe near its its apex around this period of time, the 4,000s, 4,500s per, per game on average. And, you know, there was clearly something there, but it sounds to me and it looks to me like uh, the NASL starting to falter, uh, the somewhat uh, uh, crossroads, I guess, of the ASL with, uh, you know, not sort of being on sort of the same song sheet, plus, I guess, a bit of sort of macroeconomic uh, downturn and inflation rates and whatnot. Uh, probably all conspiring. And, and frankly, by the way, no television, by the way, for either league, uh, which obviously was uh, part of the economic mix that uh, was starting to become essential for any sports uh, endeavor to to succeed.
1: Yeah, the ec- and the economic mix, the, the timing was unfortunate because you, know, you made reference and i would made reference about you, know, you, you have people not playing off, off the same music sheet. And by 1984, um, you know, the Carolinas and the Oklahoma cities uh, and the Rochester Flash, uh, the Rochester, they, they, you had these ASL teams bolting. It's like you know, we 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 have a vision. You don't. We're going to do our own thing. We're going to do this American League for the American player with strict budgets. Uh, you know, uh, with strict limits on the number of foreigners who can be on the team uh, at, at any given time. You had, uh, you know, Bobby Benson, who was owner of the Carolina Lightning, which is, again, as you know, pretty, in the, in the ASL scheme of things, fairly successful. And he's saying, so look, you know, we have to stop killing ourselves. We're the sport of the 2000s. We've got to stop dreaming that we'd, make, that we'd wake up to full stadiums. We're 10 to 15 years away. And, and he and some similarly minded owners decided, you know, soccer's got a future, but we have to start looking at this 10 to 15 year model with slow growth as opposed to doing what the NASL is doing, as opposed to doing what some of the other folks in the ASL are doing, which really was just putting, a team, putting any team on the field, uh, if, if I'm winning, great, but I'm not really thinking about tomorrow. And that's when you see the, uh, the, uh, the creation of the United Soccer League in 1984, uh, which has defections from the ASL, almost has Tulsa Roughnecks and Tampa Bay Rowdies defecting from the NASL, because the model... Was that attractive? People realized, look, the the throw money at it and see what happens isn't working. We've got to go with the slow growth model uh, and and we need similarly minded people to do it. And the USL had a great opportunity between those um, American Soccer League successful ASL franchises, uh, between being able to go into a great soccer market like Fort Lauderdale, which the strikers were forced to abandon because the NESL was lunging towards becoming an indoor league, basically, and Fort Lauderdale did not have a suitable facility. So the strikers went to Minnesota. Well, boom, here, here's the Fort Lauderdale, Fort Lauderdale Sun featuring most of your favorite strikers' players. I mean, it, was, it was, again, another great opportunity, but in, in, in the continuing story of American soccer, at least up until MLS, um, just great ideas poorly funded and poorly executed. You know, the USL is gone, uh, you know, uh, uh, about a few weeks into its second season in 1985. And that's, and, and that's the end.
0: Yeah, literally the end of, of, of outdoor pro soccer. So, so a couple of things maybe as we sort of round home here. So uh, uh, around third base sliding into home uh, to completely use a terrible analogy from another sport. Uh, the idea though, yeah, it's, it's interesting. You talk about lost opportunities. I look at it actually through, from a marketing prism, right? So, you know, when the the ASL finally folded in um, in nineteen after the nineteen eighty three season, it was uh, fifty one years right since uh, the uh, uh, the second version sort of came into into being. So it, there's a missed opportunity for the fiftieth anniversary kind of celebration. Mm-hmm. There's missed opportunity. Uh, it seems around uh, some of the newer franchises that uh, were starting to get some attention, like the Carolinas, et cetera. It also seems like there was. And maybe you can fill in the blanks here, too. If I remember correctly, perhaps out of desperation or obviousness, there was sort of this idea uh, that I remember that the ASL was floating to try to do this year-round enterprise, which would incorporate both outdoor and indoor, given the rise of the newly successful MISL and the NASL's uh, reconsideration of the sport, where instead of having to choose between the outdoor or the overlap of indoor and stuff that the ASL – was at least thinking on paper that they could maybe create an integrated league that would encompass both.
1: So yeah. As early as 1979 80, um, that was something that was on paper. And the thought was. Yeah, by by that that, it, sounds, that it,
0: sounds like a good idea. I mean, I know the NASL argument yeah, yeah. was that, but you know, you could do that with, with purpose, not sort of, you know, the way the NASL did it.
1: Right. I and mean, I think the, and the ASL was looking at it both as a way to uh, broaden one's footprint and that, Hey, you could see your team year round, but as also as a way to perhaps pay the players more uh, because you would have more revenue opportunities. So maybe I can bump up these salaries and not keep losing my best players to the other league. Uh, but I'm not taking a bath because I'm paying them a little more. But I'm I'm also playing two seasons. And indeed, that was also supposed to be part of the USL's model. I mean, everyone, yeah. You know, the, the even going back to Phil losing the 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 thought of the the the, the theme of the time was. The American player is not good enough because he's not getting enough reps. There's not enough games. You know, the college season is ridiculous. You know, you you, you play 20 games in like a four-week period, you know, three days a week or whatever. That's no good. Um, you know, in England they're playing the kids playing 40 games a year. We need to get more uh, opportunities. And so, with outdoor and indoor, the American player is going to get plenty of touches on the ball. So that that was the theme. Uh, but unlike say the North American Soccer League, who uh, I mean. It's kind of forgotten, but in '85 the plan was uh, the '84-'85 indoor season was going to be, you know, 40 some games, and the outdoor season was going to get dialed down to like 15. I mean, if the NASL survived, I suspect the outdoor league would have just disappeared. Um, indoor was where the money was at. Indoor was where the crowds were going. Indoor was where the excitement was at. And so, but the ASL and also the USL were still they They, they wanted to exploit that opportunity as a way to get more revenue, but again, in keeping with this stated goal of of being the American League for the american player um, also saw it more as a as a developmental opportunity in any event, it never happened. I mean they talked about it since nineteen eighty you know four or five years went, and never actually came to fruition.
0: Yeah, and and now I guess we could play sort of the parlor game of what if, right? I mean, what if the NASL had continued and the ASL maybe could have woken up to the fact that it could be a, don't call it a feeder league, but a a a part of a bigger sort of ecosystem in which the ASL has its role and the NASL has its role? What of the ill-fated uh, and almost, at least for a period of time, a chance for the United States to host the World Cup in 1986, I believe, that never sort of officially happened and there were various... Uh, political and, and international reasons uh, for that ultimately. And, and you know, what if things like uh, cable television had come along a little bit faster uh, to perhaps uh, offer a more obvious revenue stream? I, this is a whole bunch of things that you wonder. I, I guess maybe I could sort of use that as a prelude to maybe a wrap up question then. What is or was the legacy of this? I guess this sort of most modern version of the ASL, let's call it that, for lack of a better term. If anything, I, I, I'd like to give it some credit for, it seems to me, maybe some, you know, uh, a hint of how a second, quote unquote, division could look and or support, um, albeit not uh, very, you know, possible, I think, in the way the construct of MLS and USL is today. Uh, and maybe even sort of some credit for taking some chances on some newer and or unproven pro markets. But maybe I'm being too charitable? I don't know. What do you think?
1: I know. I I tend to think that what this latter day version of the American Soccer League, ASL 2 2.0, if you will, um, I think it's, its its legacy was that even if it itself never actually followed through on its ideas, it did create the template for what would eventually result in you know, successful professional soccer. I mean, you know, the ASL folded after the 84 season. Uh, You know, the USL, the United Soccer essentially folded as well, even though they lumbered along. But you saw in its wake immediately popping up the Western Soccer Alliance, which was four teams, I think it was four, one in Canada maybe, um, doing, you know, what the ASL said it was going to be doing for like the 10 years prior, playing American kids, Largely developed locally, you know, in the case of FC Seattle and FC Portland, with with uh, with uh, the tight affiliation with its youth clubs, and and you started seeing that you know this American centric grassroots kind of soccer that then took off on the East Coast with the third ASL in '88, but again following the Western Soccer Alliance's model, uh, and then those two leagues essentially come together to form the American Professional Soccer League and and laid the groundwork for MLS, but. They, you know, while there was, make no mistake, there was franchise fluctuations and things like that too. Those leagues, the WSA and the third ASL and the combined APSL and then ultimately the A League, not only uh, showed, as you indicate, kind of gave a model for what a second division, how it could operate and what it could do, but also showed that grassroots soccer using natives, using, you know, locally, grown and developed natives was indeed a viable business model. the ASL never had the while the ASL never had the wherewithal to fully commit to it and find out for itself that was the case it had the ideas. Gene Chizewitz had the idea. Willie Ehrlich had the idea and 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 uh, it was right after the ASL died that uh, you know you had people um, lining up and finally implementing it you know and perhaps they were able to do it because they were unburdened by the history of the ASL. I mean you would like to think if the ASL survived, it would have taken that, you know, followed that path that the WSA and the third ASL followed, and you'd like to think, well, maybe there'd be some advantage to the fact that while it's doing it, it could also raise its hand and say, "Hey, we've always been here. We've been here since 1933. Heck, we can even make a claim of having been here since 1921, because you know, history counts for something, you know, as opposed to brand new startup sport." Um, so I'll give it credit for that. It had lots of good ideas, even if it couldn't get out of its own way to actually implement them. And I think, that's, um, and I think you still see vestiges of that in the, the lower tiers of USL. Um, and, of course, again, if you're looking at the academy system, while it fell, I mean, it, it, obviously it wasn't an American invention. I mean, Willie Ehrlich took the idea from Europe. You know, the fact is it was done in the ASL first. It was done successfully. You know, shame on NLS for not picking up on it years earlier. That's what the ASL deserves. It it, it had the right ideas um, that maybe other people would have stumbled upon on their own, maybe not, but the fact is the ideas were out there, so immediately after it and the NASL's demise, someone else was willing to pick up the ball, and we had some form of professional soccer uh, in place in the era between the two major leagues.
0: Last question: Do you worry that uh, because of the rise of ML- MLS and 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 its uh, relative success, right? Its stability and its uh, we can argue the merits of single ownership and how it's helped or not helped the international game and all that kind of stuff, or pro rel and I mean, there's a lot lot of lot of tangential questions that can be sort of brought up. But do you wonder that? Um, I mean, you kind of hinted at it as as we began our conversation, right? There are people that think that pro soccer really started in 19. 19- 96 with MLS or, you know, that or or charitably that Pelé was the beginning of pro soccer in this country. Right. And and as you well know, and, and as hopefully most of our audience recognizes and if you, if you don't, you know, there's this Internet thing. You can kind of look it up for yourself. There's this very, very long standing, uh, uh, arguably ethnically rooted uh, and very rich history of, of the sport of soccer in this country going way, way back in the 1800s and then some. Um, do you do you worry that the ASL maybe as it sort of uh, felt its way through to quote unquote capitalized professional second slash semi first tier soccer kind of I don't know uh, frittered away perhaps some of that's history or or do you, do, do you wonder or do you, do you worry about its entire history inclusive of this period of time being swept away or ignored I, I kind of do actually
1: it's 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 a problematic question because. You know, you want to impress upon people that soccer's always been here. It's not a sport that only popped up because, you know, in the participation trophy era of everyone plays and now we're professionalizing. No, it's always been here. And you like to be able to point to people that it's always been here. The problem is, you know, the the other lingering trope that the anti-soccer community likes to throw out there. Currently, it's, oh, it's a girls game. And, of course, the fact that the women win and the men don't uh, doesn't help. But prior to that, it was always, oh, it's not a game for Americans. It's a foreign game. And so it's problematic when you want... I mean, it, it, when you when you try to champion the second ASL as being a fully professional league, even if you're willing to look past the fact that it really wasn't, but at least it was, you know, professional and, and not entirely unsuccessful. I mean, it produced, you know, it, it had about 12 Open Cup winners in that 1933 to 71 era. I mean, it was, you know... It, some good soccer was being played. In order to do that, you all you do is highlight the ethnicity, the otherness of soccer that I think certainly NLS, certainly the NASL, had worked so hard to get away from. So it's really it's really quite a quandary. You, know, you don't want to ignore the ASL. You don't want to ignore the great players. I mean, you, know, we, you want to champion the 1950 team that upset England. It's it a great story. Uh, and you can't really do that without pointing out that the guy who scored the goal, Joe Gaitens, played with Brookhead and was a leading scorer in the ASL that year. The guy who assisted on the goal, Walter Barr, played with Philadelphia Nationals, who you know won uh, you know won the Open Cup a couple of years earlier with a team that was all American but for uh, one player. Um, you, know, you don't want to forget the great players uh, of that of that 1933 to uh, you know 1966 era. You don't want to forget the Americans. You know, like Joey Fink, the guys who would never get an opportunity in the NASL, uh American-born and bred, who would go to the A.S.L. and 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 star. Um, uh, you know, they, 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 they ought to be better remembered because they are, they are among the great American players of the era that no one talks about because they play in the league, no one remembers. So, but it, it, but again, it cuts both ways. You, you can't. You can't. It's like the Washington Redskins conundrum. People want to, you know, you, you want to talk about the Washington N.F.L. team but you can't get away with always calling it Washington NFL team. You know, I can't talk about how great, you know, Fabrice Salcedo was and just say he played for Brooklyn and not have someone say, wait, Brooklyn, Hispano, wasn't it? it, It's problematic if you want to shed the, the, uh, the, the ethnic, uh, uh, you can't, if not ethnic origin, certainly saying it as uncharitably as possible, the ethnic anchor that held the sport down from developing uh, in a way that you know, the basketball had the chance to develop, say, uh, you know, uh, in that era when pro sports were starting to uh, to, uh, to grow. So it's tough. But the historian in me says, no, you can't forget it because of the players. Gonna, in the end, you've got to honor the players and remember the players. But it's, it's but it's problematic because in, in some ways you, you shoot yourself in the foot as far as getting the game an even wider acceptance today, I
0: think. Yeah, and I think there's also some asterisks too that could be uh, uh, remembered, and and maybe maybe easily so in Major League Soccer, right? So as North as um, Charlotte gets their uh, their MLS franchise in in order, right? I mean, there were a couple of years there in the '80s where the Carolina Lightning were were pretty pretty compelling, and maybe even the first season or, or two, or, or I know it was rumored as as being part of the of the mix. You know, could actually be could be playing some of their games or maybe some of their exhibitions in that. Uh, that Memorial Stadium there, what of, uh, you know, the Sacramento uh, Spirits and Gold, maybe F- uh, Sacramento Republic FC or whatever their name is going to be, uh, could also be remembered too. I mean, there's a lot of little things that, that you could actually maybe individually pull back some of that history uh, and maybe remember and bring back the ASL, albeit in chunks and in pieces, that could, you know, add some continuity to MLS that, you know, in fits and starts has been done uh, with some of the old NASL teams. You know, Columbus Magic, God forbid the the crew could, you know, do a night that remembers the two years of that franchise and their silver and gold exploits in the Clippers Stadium. I, I don't know. Maybe I'm just uh, wishing uh, fancy here. But,
1: uh, you know, it's all history. There is a fourth American soccer league. Um, and it's, uh, it's, it's, it's very low-key. Uh, but it was doing that. It had to fill off the fury. It brought back the Adams. It was bringing back the New Jersey Americans. I mean, it was trying to resuscitate some of those ASL brands um, in its role as a uh, Division four, almost. Uh, basically, it was, um, interestingly enough, a group of uh, proteins that were at the top of, a, of an academy pyramid. And I, I forget the status of that league with the rise of uh, the uh, NISA, but there was actually a fourth ASL doing what you're saying, sort of bringing back those old brands although as a you know fury and adams or nasl obviously but in some other cases bringing back asl brands and and trying to you know um recapture some of that 1975 to 83 history which is not you know i mean the, the teams came and went but los angeles skyhawks you know sacramento gold uh california sunshine cleveland cobras these, these are teams that were fondly remembered by the people who were there and supporting them so um yeah it, it's it's a shame to throw all that history out but it's difficult. You can't pretend that the ASL didn't pop up until 71. You know, you can't shed the Newark, Portuguese, Ukrainian, Stitch type of era, because those are names that dot the champions list. And uh, so again, it's, it's problematic in that American soccer is kind of ashamed of its past. And yet at the same time, can't forget the great players that are there because you know, many times it was American players playing for these social clubs. So they're kind of stuck.
0: All right. Our thanks to Steve as we have opened up the Pandora's box known as the American Soccer League, at least the second version of it, and at least the 1970s and early 1980s uh, last vestiges of it. Fascinating stuff. Lots more to sort of explore. Uh, You New York Apollo fans, uh, you Columbus Magic fans, you Sacramento Gold and Sacramento Spirits fans, uh, you Carolina Lightning fans. You know, all those, by the way, all, you know, uh, should be uh, perhaps uh, remembered and uh, and dug deeply into as you uh, ascend into Major League Soccer status with your new franchises. Why don't you uh, just uh, just a thought to know that there is some uh, actual pro soccer history in those uh, in those markets before MLS uh, makes its merry way into uh, officialness uh, in your respective markets. But I digress. Uh, more about Steve can be found. God, where can you not find out more about Steve you find out more about him at the uh, Society for American Soccer History, about the closest thing to saber uh, that uh, soccer nerds have uh, in history and, and data and stats and all that kind of stuff. Uh, you can find out more about them at U.S. And And uh, you'll see all the uh, all the great stuff uh, that they do to keep this sport uh, m- uh, memorable, uh, memorable, mem- mem- memorized. No, what am I saying? Memorialized. That's the word I'm looking for. Boy, it's been a long day. Uh, but Steve knows what I'm talking about, and he knows what he's talking about for sure. Uh, you can follow Steve also on Twitter at Soccer Maven. That's Soccer Maven, M-A-V-N. Drop the E there, Soccer Maven. Uh, and also he's, uh, as you uh, probably heard him reference, and we've talked to him on a couple of other occasions, is a deeply passionate uh, guy in the realm of, uh, of lacrosse history in this country. Uh, and you can find uh, all his uh, stuff devoted to that. The, the website CrossCheck, that's C-R-O-S-S-E, check, C-H-E-C-K, dot com, formerly known as Retrolax, which we talked about in a previous episode. And that's uh, a, a tremendous repository of stuff like the old uh, National Lacrosse League, uh, the previous version back in the 70s and and other leagues prior to that and since. Uh, all kinds of great stuff. And you can follow him uh, for his lacrosse things at LaxMaven, L-A-X M-A-V-N. again, dropping the E. Uh, all kinds of ways to follow Steve, and all kinds of ways, frankly, to follow us. Hell, if you got an ASL memory, American Soccer League memory, well, uh, we'd love to hear it. Uh, Al Troutwick, if you're out there, or this is uh, shared with you this episode, we'd love to hear from you in particular because uh, we know beyond your uh, your great years calling fun stuff that we would like to obsess about, like the Arena Football League for uh, NBC, or even the, uh, of course, the old Major Indoor Soccer League on the old USA. Cable Network with uh, Kyle Roach Jr., one of our previous guests, we uh, we certainly know and remember that uh, you got your start pretty much pro-wise uh, on the air with the old uh, New York uh, Apollo uh, in the late 70s. I remember vividly listening to uh, games that you called, I think, for their championship season in 78 on the old WMCA AM570, in addition to uh, various stations in Long Island. So Al yeah, Travick, if you're listening or anybody else, frankly, who uh, remembers or has some direct connection to some of the uh, old ASL history. Hey, we'd love to hear from you. Uh, you Cleveland Cobras fans. You uh, you Rhode Island Oceaneers fans. Perhaps some Cincinnati Comets fans. Maybe some indie Daredevil folks out there. Uh, by all means, uh, give us a uh, give us a shout. At our email address, it's hello at goodseatsstillavailable.com. Uh, that's the way to get in contact with us. Not only for ASL stuff, but any stuff for, for that matter. Uh, and of course, our website. If you want to listen to any and all of our old episodes, and 140 some odd now and counting, and more to come, uh, that's uh, our website. Can be found at goodseatsstillavailable.com. dot com. That's the place you get all of our our old shows. You can see all the uh, the great imagery that we've uh, found there from the interwebs, and, uh, and of course, all the links to our various media and books, and all the things that people are uh, talking about on our show. That's all there for you. Again, at goodseatsstillavailable.com, dot com, and of course can sign up for our email newsletter uh, there, and you can also find our our social media feeds, and you can just go to those directly if you want to. On Twitter, you'll find us at Good Seats Still. On Instagram, you will find us at Good Seats Still available. And, uh, yeah, on Facebook, there's a page devoted to us uh, somewhere in there, too. Uh, Let's see. One last uh, thing. We want to say thank you to our good pal, Jerry Payne, uh, for his uh, editing and production skills this week. And uh, he spent all of last week, as we dropped this episode, during his day job uh, at Radio Row there during the Super Bowl in Miami. So hopefully he's not too hungover uh, from the festivities from uh, from Sunday's game. We don't know what happened because we're recording this uh, days ahead of that game. But uh, hopefully for everybody's sake, it was uh, enjoyable to to watch and uh, you didn't snack too heavily and uh, you drove home safely. We uh, hope you drive home safely or if you're listening in the car, you don't pull over and veer off. Uh, into any kind of accident we appreciate you listening to us of course and uh we don't know what we're gonna be talking about next week but boy oh boy i'm sure it'll be exciting and interesting as we always try to do and uh, we thank you tremendously for uh for giving us a listen and until next week take care